So, it sounds really promising. You're going to be the winner. That sounds really good. And then uh, you got the ace and king of clubs. It's coming true. I got the ace and king of clubs coming true. I'm going to be the winner. All right? This is looking good. And then you step up and you play through one time and you beat all three of the others. It's looking good. Right? It's all looking really good. And then you find out you got to play each one of them 3,000 times. What's the first thing in your mind? What's the first thing you're thinking? Yep, it's going to take forever, and? And, I'm win. and whatever I win better be good, right? If I'm going to play 9,000 times. So what if I said, if I told you that the prize was two shiny pennies? David would play. Because, yeah, I think your time might be worth more than two shiny pennies, actually. Um, I might pay two, two shiny pennies just not to have to see that played 9,000 times. Because that's a lot. So the idea is you're winning, it's coming clear, it's becoming obvious, and then all of a sudden you start to realize, okay, this is going to take longer than I thought. 
Okay? I want you to bear that in mind then as we go to the text. Grab your Bibles if you would. Maybe get a little excited with me as we are in Joshua chapter 11. Yay. Amen. Thank you very much. It was a little disjointed, but we pretty much all are on board today. And I'm grateful for that because this really spoke to me. And I hope it will to you as well. Okay? So you know the story thus far, and very we're going to get like the literally 90-second synopsis. Joshua and the Israelites have come into the promised land. They went through consecration, circumcision, and a huge worship service in which all the words of Moses were read. They invaded Jericho, which God tore down the walls, which was the big stepping point to being able to do it. That was after God parted the Jordan River, right? So they see it's happening. It's looking good. However, somebody at Jericho sort of broke the rules. That was Achan. He stole some stuff. Then they went up against Ai. They lost, and uh, 16 men lost their lives for no good reason uh, as they fled from Ai. Uh, And then they found out it was Achan's fault. They massacred Achan and his entire family. Then a a huge worship service. And then the battle begins. The Gibeonites come, deceive them, trick them into accepting them as allies. Even though Joshua was a little bit cautious, not quite cautious, cautious enough to consult God on the matter, but cautious enough to ask some questions. He then accepts them as an ally. Then their allies, the Gibeonites, were attacked by the, the, the alliance of the southern kings. And uh, Joshua and his men marched 22 miles over broken terrain overnight to disrupt that attack and to surprise uh, the, the kings. And we had the whole incident at the cave, and those kings were all slain, and the men came and put their foot on their throats, indicating the great victory of God and doing so in a very public way. And then the battle continued as they took, in a very strategic way, the lands beginning at the ridge. They're kind of in the middle of the promised land and in one direction. And so they, uh, if you remember, I preached a sermon very early in Joshua where I said, if you want to have victory, one of the, uh, not to wind up in a two-front war, and one way to do that is to put something behind you. And so now one edge of the promised land is behind them. So they don't have to worry about kings and armies coming from that direction. And now they're pretty well ready to handle the other direction. And that's where we're at in the story. Okay, brings us right up to present day for them. And it begins in Joshua chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, Then it came about when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of it. So he heard of everything that's been happening, how Joshua and the Israelites have been doing all this conquering, defeating, destroying, massacring. Um, You would call it genocide, but it's not genocide, remember, because a lot of people fled and they allowed them to flee and all that. Then it came about when Jabin heard... Uh, king of Hazor heard of it that he sent to Jobab, Jobab, or Jobab if you're a southerner, king, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and the king of Ashaf, and to the kings who were of the north in the hill country. So Joshua has conquered uh, a, a large area, but these are, these are areas that are not yet conquered. And in the Arabah, south of Chinaroth, and the lowland, on the heights of the door of the west, to the Canaanites on the east and on the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite in the hill country, and the Hivite, at the foot of Hermon in the land of Mizpah, and they came out. They and all their armies with them. As many people as the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. So all of those kings, having agreed to meet, came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. So to this point, basically what we see is we have a king calling to everybody that's left, pretty much, that has any major standing. He is a a leader of a large city-state that has a large, strong-standing army and is pretty powerful. And he becomes the rallying point. He summons everybody that he can think of that would be anybody that's in danger from the Israelites 
Um, and he has them all come out, and they come out. They all come out. All their armies come out, and we got a shot. We, may, we stand up against these Israelites, and they all come together uh, there at the waters of Miram, and they're going to fight against Israel. Right away, I want you to see a difference. They're coming out to fight against Israel. Unlike the previous alliance that came out to fight against Gibeon, to the Gibe- against the Gibeonites, and their cities, not all, not just Gibeon, but the Gibeonites and their cities. And uh, these guys are coming out to fight Israel. So this is the enemy taking the fight to the individual or to the nation of God, right? This is no longer attacking, as we talked about when we talked about Gibeon, the enemy attacking the allies of God's people, which would mean not fighting God and his people directly anyway. And that's what they did when they attacked Gibeon. But now this is the enemy taking the fight to God's people, calling out all the stops, coming after Joshua and God's people. Okay, Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Before we go any, any further, is this any kind of a new promise from God? Is there any new promise here? Mostly no, right? Notice there is a little something tacked on to the end uh, to it with the whole horses and chariots thing. Um, but he says he's going to do what he's done before. He's going to deliver Israel. He's going to deliver the promised land into their hands. He's going to do everything that he said he would do. And even though uh, when Joshua looks, he sees this huge army, the biggest they've fought yet, much bigger than anything that they've fought yet, and they see them arrayed against Israel, not against another enemy where they can come up and surprise them perhaps or, or ambush the ambushers, so to speak. The only thing that's different is he tacks on that, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. And the previous it said that they were this huge armies with very many horses and chariots. And so a horse and a chariot is a, like a tank. Interesting analogy there. For that day, it is a tank. And you could say that those horses and chariots had Panzerfeer, right? Tigerfeer? Tigerfeer, right? That, that men would look at that. These are, these are metal chariots or heavy wood chariots pulled by big war horses. The, each of those war horses in normal combat was good enough to defo- defeat three, four, five infantrymen. They would beat them down. The infantrymen stood, and this is not a horse like you might see on a horse riding farm, right? This is not a riding pony. This is a war horse. These are big horses. And so your top of your head comes to the horse's shoulder, right? The tall of us, the tallest of us. These are big horses, big powerful steeds pulling chariots. They're armored horses. They have spikes and blades on them, and the chariots have spikes and blades. And we don't know exactly how far it went, but we know all the way back to Egypt, when Egypt pursued them, that the Pharaoh's chariot was wrapped in metal and had blades on it. And they actually think that they found chariots like that under uh, the sea now, under the Red Sea. And it may have been from that. They can't explain why else it would be there. But in any case, uh, these chariots cause, normally cause great fear in their enemies. And they had many horses and many chariots, God, in his reassertion of his commission to Joshua and the outcome that he has already promised would come true, he says, you will hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Before we go any further, I want you to see that God is saying, I am triumphant over anything that causes you fear, 
You already need to know that. It was, it's already been settled and done. That's settled. You need to understand that. But here comes a new thing, something that everyone who is, just makes sense. It's reasonable. It's logical to fear chariots, even though an Israelite soldier is worth a dozen enemy Israelite soldiers and a six-foot Israelite soldier might be worth a ten-foot uh, enemy soldier or a dozen of those even. When you look at a chariot, you think, well, how are we going to do that? I mean, this, this thing comes charging. What am I going to do? If I set my spear, nothing's going to happen except my spear is going to break. If we form a phalanx and we all set our spears, all that's going to happen is all of our spears are going to break and we're all going to die to the blades of the chariot. And so it's natural, reasonable, logical to be afraid of chariots. And God says then, not only does God say, I will defeat the chariots for you, I will still give you victory, but on top of that, he says, and you will destroy the horses and the chariots. That's interesting. Because not only is God promising victory, but he is telling them that they will destroy the implements of war that come out against them. A little bit more of the text. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Maram and attacked them. Now I think it's interesting we get that phrase came upon suddenly because they were arrayed out for battle. And basically what that's saying is they really weren't expecting the Israelites to come out. They were expecting to have to go hunting or, or something like that. To, to arrange a conflict, to maybe taunt, right? And that kind of thing. But that's not what happens. The Israelites come out. with When you have courage, you come up against the enemies of God in your courage. And they're not expecting that because they're as big as they ever have been. Uh, I was uh, listening to praise and worship music last night before I went to bed, and I, and I ran into a song, and I don't remember the name of it even, but one of the things is, one of the verses said, the enemy really should have known. The enemy really should have known was the verse. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, he really should have known. And that's it. After all that's happened, all they've seen, all they've heard, and these people were filled with fear over Israel's people, and now because of this new method of gathering together all of the enemies of God uh, that are here in the mix anyway, and bringing them against God's people, they, they're feeling a little encouraged. They're feeling a little bit like they might have a chance. And all of a sudden, Joshua and God's people come on them suddenly, courageously, if you will, and attacks them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel. Notice that it's not Joshua and it's not the suddenness of the attack. But the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as Great Sidon and Misrephoth Maim and the Valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them Listen to this. Until no survivor was left to them. The army that was as great as the sands of the seashore falls to the army of Joshua and the Israelites because of what God has done. And they not only win the battle, but while the enemy is en route, as was ordained by God, they kill them all. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. I kind of think that phrase there is to speak about the obedience and faithfulness of Joshua, even in the face of what appeared to be massive opposition and carrying out the commission of God. But I also think it's there to remind us that Joshua is not vindictive. He's not a murderer necessarily. He's not out to, he, in his own self perhaps he would not have done it, but he followed out the commands of God and massacred every last one of them. And listen, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, I want to say to you that those horses were very valuable. Not only could they have provided some advantage in future battles in protecting the kingdom, 
I say only some advantage because Joshua and his men were not trained to use horses. These are the kind of horses that probably would bite your fingers off. Uh, they'll step on your foot. I went horseback riding in Kentucky year, some years ago, and um, while we were there, and uh, Molly was with us, as a matter of fact, and uh, it was one of the last vacations that we went to see Mammoth Cave. As we were horseback riding, the guide told us a story of how a man had been riding with them in line in horses, and he had gotten his horse too close to the horse in front of him, and the horse had kicked. And his the horse's kick, and this is a riding horse, this is what, for, to use game this is a light riding horse. This is not a stallion. They're, in fact, they use all fairly docile mares who just kind of walk in line or whatever. And that horse kicked, and when it kicked, it broke the man's leg just below the knee immediately. Just broke it, clean in two, both bones. Broke it so that it bent over like a rag doll. In an instant. That's how strong horses are. And so these horses are a little dangerous, even if they should be captured. Uh, but the bottom line is they could use them to plow, right? They're going to have to plant next year. They could use them to haul wood, to fix things, and, 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 and pull, use pulley systems to lift heavy loads. I mean, there's a lot of potential uses, but they hamstring the horses. These chariots, they, these chariots are made of valuable materials, wood and metal crafted. Uh, you can make furniture. You can make uh, houses or, or armor protections or lots of things, but they burn the chariots. It's all gone. It's interesting when you think about it. Just a few verses left. Eight or so. <laughs> then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with a sword. For Hazor formerly was head of all the kingdoms. So here's this other big city. The jewels of, the, of this realm, if you will, were Jericho and Hazor. There were a lot of big city-states in here, but the jewels of Jericho and Hazor Joshua now captures the second of those, strikes the head uh, of it, which was their king, and uh, there really isn't any other city-state like it. And they struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them. There was no one left who breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds, in other words, that didn't uh, resist physically, uh, that, didn't, that didn't have to be broken down or burned to be conquered, and, and so that looks like it's all of the other cities. He says he didn't, he didn't uh, burn any cities that just stood there, except Hazor alone, which Joshua burned, and all the spoil of these cities and the cattle the sons of Israel took as their plunder. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so jo Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus Joshua took all that land, the hill country, all the Negev, all that land of Goshen and the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak that rises towards Seir, even as far as Balgad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of, the, of Mount Hermon. Now, really, all you need to know as you read all of that, and you're going to look at a map, we may do that next week, look at how they're laid out. Really, all you need to know is he took the vast majority of the promised land, but they do not take all of the promised land from one end to the other, even by the end of all of this. But they have now defeated the, the enemies of God pretty much summarily. 
And it says, And he captured all their kings, and he struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. It took a while. So as we read this, we saw the conquest was not over. In fact, even at the end of this, what we've just read, it's not over. And even at the end of their fighting, it's not over. In fact, they don't, they don't really get close to taking the promised land until under Saul and David sometime later, after the whole judges period. So that's coming a long way down the road. But as far as Joshua goes, he fulfilled the commands that were given to Moses, that were given to him. He decimated, wiped out, chased out those people, with the exception of we know the Gibeonites remain. He doesn't destroy all the cities, notice. He keeps most, the vast majority of them, and they occupy those cities. Um, but he did destroy Hazor. And we know they set fire to Ai, but probably didn't destroy it completely. And they completely destroyed the city of Jericho. That's history to this point in the story. Now, there's a few things in this text that I want you to see. Uh, first of all, they're moving into a new area. Life is like that sometimes. You go to a new job, a new segment of your relationship, a new period of dealing with your health, whatever it might be. They were moving into a new area. And when they would take, move to take this new ground, or even before they moved to take this new ground, new enemies initiated new offensive, new tactics but this tactic is not entirely new, is it? It's new, but not entirely new. They all summed up their strength. They all gathered together to work together in some kind of allegiance, even though they, evil normally doesn't do that. But they, they all gathered together to do that, to work in some kind of a strength. They summoned all their allies. But what we see here is that there is a different motivation. So when the enemy comes directly against the believer, when the enemy comes directly against God's people, God's kingdom, and God... When the enemy now has chosen no longer to run or no longer to end run or no longer to try to flank or no longer to try to be crafty, right? no longer to try to manipulate and figure a way through their demise, but to come straight at you head on with all force and all might, break up your marriage, break up your relationship, stop you from speaking for the Lord, stop your evangelism, stop your witnessing, stop your life even. When the enemy comes all at you, the motivation is different. I want you to turn with me for a minute, if you would, to John chapter 11. In the book of John, in chapter 11, we see an interesting passage of Scripture which is largely about spiritual warfare. And Jesus is teaching, so we're getting it right straight from the mouth of God, as it were. In John chapter 11, beginning in verse 24, it says this. Hold on a minute. I have the wrong reference. How did I do that? Give me a second. I'm not sure I did. Once I, as I tell the parable, you will, you will know it, and then you will, maybe somebody will say, it's in this chapter and this verse, okay? But I'll tell it to you. Uh, Jesus is describing how when a man is um, dealing with an evil spirit, and that evil spirit is cast out, it then goes and wanders through the wilderness. Comes back and finds the house all set in order. Anybody found the reference yet? Yeah, we know what we're talking about, but we can't find the reference right, right off the top of my head. I had the wrong reference. Yep. So he says, he comes back, he finds the house all put in order, and then he finds seven other spirits worse than himself, more wicked than himself, it says, and he invites them to come back in, and they all live in the theoretically neatened house. Okay? 
So what I want you to see is, what is the motivation of the wicked spirit that was cast out? Now, we have a wicked spirit, and we also have a lack of a strong man in the house. Right? It's couched in that, that, those verses, the context of talking about the strong man. And so we don't have the Holy Spirit. So we're not talking about a believer who has cast out an evil spirit. Follow? We're talking about a non-believer, essentially, who somehow or other, the evil spirit has been cast out. And then they start getting their stuff together. That starts looking good. And then they, that evil spirit wanders through the wilderness, comes back and finds, okay, the house is looking pretty good. I'm going to go back in there and live. But he doesn't. Why doesn't he go back and live immediately? I mean, if I, if, if I went on vacation and then I came home and my house had been all neatly organized and there's some new things, but I would want to be there. You know what I mean? I'd be like, yes, I'm going to celebrate this. This is awesome. But he doesn't go back. He instead goes and finds other spirits, many of them, more wicked than himself, and they all move in. Now, there are three possible motivations that immediately come to mind. I was, I was thinking about this. So the first one is, it's possible that he's being generous toward the other wicked allies. Is it Luke, not John? Okay, so we've, got, we've, been, we've figured out what the problem was. The verses, if you want to go there and read them, are in Luke, not John. So that was a, what, like a typo. <laughs> that's that's my most common mistake when writing down scriptures is I put down the wrong gospel. So the reference is Luke eleven twenty four. Yeah, I just checked my other one. I think the other one's good. So, all right. So Luke eleven twenty four, and I already sort of paraphrased it for you, um, but you can read it there. When it comes, it finds it swept, put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. And that's important that we found that phrase. Okay? So, first of all, it could be generous toward his evil allies. Have you ever known evil to be generous? <laughs> I mean, is he, is he doing that because he just wants to be nice to the other evil spirits? I don't think that's pretty much their motivation. How about to curry favor with these other evil spirits? Well, in order to curry favor with them, he and these other evil spirits are all going to live in the same space going forward. So it's currying favor. There has to be some advantage. Well, they're going to live in the same space. He's not going to leave again. He's going to stay there. So one way, he gets the space to himself. The other way, he shares it with seven other wicked evil spirits. And so the only way that makes any sense is you say, well, they just like to be together. And I think that's not entirely untrue. I think they like to be together. Uh, but I think what we're talking about, what makes the most sense is it benefits him. That's why evil acts. It benefits him. It benefits him in two ways. It benefits him in uh, a greater safety. Right? Remember, this is a non-believer that this spirit was occupying previously and that spirit was kicked out. What's to stop from being kicked out again? Right? So now that he's got seven other evil, more wicked spirits than he, now it's going to be harder to kick him out. Take that back to Joshua. What did they do? They summoned up all the armies. They're coming directly against Joshua and the Israelites. And so they get everybody together. Why? Because in safety, even though they feared separately that Joshua and the Israelites might conquer them, all together they start feeling fairly confident. Yeah, I think we can do this, right? Even when we did our little blackjack illustration, Amalia pointed out that sometimes when you play blackjack, people play, if you get a five-card chart, which means five cards equaling 21 and under, you can even beat a blackjack. And that's a home rule that a lot of people play in some 
Some uh, gambling places even allow it, but not most of them. Point is, when you got a lot, that's more than a little. Even if the little's really good, the lot starts to feel like it's more than the little. And so he feels confident. Now, if it was a believer and, and the seven wicked spirits came and he came and they all came and tried to move back into the clean house and the Holy Spirit was there, what would happen? Could move back in, right? But we're not dealing with somebody who is with God in this case. We're dealing with somebody who, is, who has been blessed to have an evil spirit kept cast out. So the first motivation is that he won't get kicked out again. Okay? And then the second motivation, I, I think, and this one is less obvious, but is that there's a fellowship of evil with evil. When you're evil, you like to have evil people around, not so you can be more evil. You're not, that doesn't change how evil you are, but so you can be justified in your actions. Right? So I, I'm going to lie. I like to hang out with liars because then we all lie and we all think it's okay. And I feel okay about the evil that I'm doing. Well, because other people are doing the same evil. I just, I'm justified. Why is that an issue? Because they all know ultimately what? They will stand before God in judgment and spend eternal damnation in the lake of fire. They will be permanently forever separated from God and all mankind. And so they know that. So in the meantime, they need what comfort that they can get. They need what encouragement they can get. I submit to you that the armies that came against Joshua and the Israelites in their heart of hearts, knew that they would be wiped out and could have facilitated a plan. Gibeonites did. They could have fled. They could have, done other, they could have had other opportunities, but they don't. They find how they can, for what time they can, to find what encouragement they can to continue to be opposition to God's people. So there's a new tactic present here by the enemies of God. And again, when was the new tactic brought into play. It was brought into play when God's people were already having victory. They were already having success. It's pretty obvious that there was going to be victory. And the enemy says, we got to do something. We can't just fall in front of God's people. We've got to do something. So call up all the resources we can so that we are as many as the sand on the seashore and we're going to go directly at the heart of the matter. We're going to go after Joshua and the Israelites directly. And that's what the enemies will do at that moment at which you have had victory, you have had success, you have believed in your victory and success, and you are preparing to go into a new conquest. Notice, by the way, that this conquest, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, but this conquest is essentially part of the already commission. Right? They're doing what they were already told they would be doing. It's not like they're going to go, well, let's, I think we should just take another country too. It'll be an extra. In case our first country is not all that good. No, this is the original country that God told them to take. And so that's us. And you, So you might be, for example, in your life in a situation where you're having some victories. You know, I, I, I'm overcoming. This is good. God's working in me. That's good. And you, you know, but there's this, this problem that I see. And it might be as simple as wanting to tell somebody about Jesus. And you're a little inhibited. Or wanting to sing out in worship. But you don't think your voice sounds all that good. Or wanting to stand up for what's right. Somebody's verbally abusing somebody else and this person's wrong. And, you, and you, you, you want to, you know God wants you to step up and speak up and say what's right. For him to be his mouthpiece, to be his laborer, to be his servant. That's a new area for you. And you, as you are preparing to move in that new area... The new tactic of the enemy is to rally forces. Now, they're not going to go back and try to poke or prick at 
where you used to lie, because that's in the dust, that's gone. Or where you used to be lazy, or you used to not praise God at all, or your heart didn't used to be uh, belong to God. They, Joshua and the Israelites have been consecrated, circumcised. They were a huge worship service. There's no attempt by this enemy to go, let's see if we can buy some of them off and weaken the enemy. Let's see if we can flank and just pick off a few off of his camp so that that had been tried uh, decades before, right? And, and, but not here, not now. We're going to rally all of our strength and go directly against the man or woman of God. Go directly against God's people and see if we can, we can have at least a moment of feeling, of encouragement, like we might have a chance. It's the same commission to advance the kingdom. Our commission, uh, essentially, advance the kingdom. Go, therefore, he says, go and serve, go and witness, go and evangelize, go and be the people of God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Defeat the enemy, and you could almost say this at every course. Overcome the obstacles of persecution. Persevere, be faithful. Overcome tribulation. Be found faithful when Jesus comes again. Holding on to what you know to be true, to, to what you know is right, to Christ himself. If we were dangling by a thread of his gown when he comes again, we will be found faithful. And to stand in the day of evil... And in the end, having done all to be found still standing, that is our commission. It doesn't change. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed since Jesus gave it, since Paul spoke it. That's our commission. That's our task, if you will. And every time you or the church or your family or the church at large, every time the kingdom tries to move into a new area and bring that area into the kingdom of God, put it under the submission of the Lord, the enemy is going to respond the same way. He's going to get his crawl up. He's going to whip out his chariots and horses. Whatever tools he is comfortable using, he's going to pull all of that out and intimidate you the best you possibly can. So you walk up to that person that you know in your heart, God's telling you, I just need to tell him about Jesus and then let God work out what that's going to be like. And the enemy is going to bring up everything he possibly can about how you're a slob or how you're sloppy or lazy or mistaken or you don't know how to listen to God or everything he possibly how your your friend or your spouse or your sister said this or that or the other he's going to bring out every tool he possibly can to attack you directly so that you feel feeble in the face of opposition and god says be strong and courageous for this day i will give them over into your hands you will have victory by way of transition to the second point i want to mention that occasionally we get hooked on Drilling up, building up, getting ready, instead of just being who we are in Christ. Sometimes we're so busy building ourselves up for that fight, training ourselves up to be ready to do the thing, that we never quite get into taking the new territory. We never quite get into conquering the enemy, bringing the territory into the kingdom. I want you to bear that in mind for a second as we see the second point in here. These guys were trusting in the implements of war. You realize that these are wealthy, powerful kingdoms. And they had chariots and horses, which is way more powerful, way more wealthy as an army than the Israelites were. And they were trusting in the implements of war. And I say to you that trusting in the implements of war is error. It is the wrong thing to do. Why is that so important to us? Because we have implements of war. 
you're familiar with the spiritual disciplines, right? I want to show you, I want to show you, but I want to read to you a page. This is the year one study guide that we give to folks when they first start coming to New Heights, and everybody's welcome to have one. Uh, we produced it, and it's only cost a few dollars. And this is mine. And this is page 58 where the spiritual disciplines are listed. It says here at the bottom of the page, as a very basic step right now, go down the list above and write in a step you will take. So these are 10 spiritual disciplines, and I was supposed to write in a step I would take. Here's, here's what I wrote. Bible intake. Um, I'll hang a whiteboard by the door of my house and write the memory verse on it every month. And I will read what the Bible says about that topic for 5 to 10 minutes daily. I have a whiteboard. It has the memory verse of the month on it every month, usually by about the 15th, because I'm not very proactive. Um, however, I have failed for the last six months in reading about that topic for five to ten minutes every day. In fact, I think I've done that maybe three times in six months. Okay, Evangelism. Uh, every day as I walk with Jesus, I will talk to anyone I possibly can about Jesus. Say I've had about 50% on that. Fasting, which I define as giving up something that you value in order to walk closer with God. I've given up a number of things, and occasionally I give up food, things like that, and fasting, and I, that was not the action plan that came up here. I said that I would set up a profile on Netflix to not allow myself to watch any TVMA TV. You know what that means, right? So it's TV that would be rated R if it was in a movie theater, um, and I did that. So I have a profile, and I don't watch TVMA TV. So I could go down the rest of this list, but what's unique is I get to the bottom, and the tenth spiritual discipline on this is worship. And guess what? There's no action point. We are humans. You understand? We have finite mental capabilities. That means you're not like God. You don't know everything, nor do you get everything right, nor are you going to ever get everything right. I hate to burst your bubble, but until you go and stand before Jesus and he makes you once and for all completely holy, clean, and perfect, the perfect that we have now is completeness. Not perfection like nothing ever goes wrong, but completeness. We are complete in Christ. So you are a finite human being, not like God. And so even if you should apply these spiritual disciplines, but why is that such a big deal? Well, because of this. Because people get wrapped up in the spiritual disciplines and they begin to depend on the spiritual disciplines. And I'm going to step on toes right now as I say this. And I, I want you to know I stepped on my own already, so don't worry about it. It was really painful. I had to do both sides. Here's the deal. We say, when I'm prayed up, and following the commands of Jesus, the best I know how, I am strong enough to resist this temptation. When I am in the Word and I am reading, I am strong enough to do, insert X. Right? You know what that is? That's us trusting in the implements of war that God has given us rather than trusting in God himself. That's a pretty big deal, isn't it? Who saved you? Who made you clean? Who set you on high as a city on a hill? A light to all mankind? God? Well, you know, God only got it right as long as you're reading your Bible pretty consistently and praying all the time. No. It doesn't work that way. you saved, you cleanse, you're forgiven. And if you should screw up, you have an advocate before God who is Jesus. And you can be found innocent before the God of heaven. Now, am I saying to you, you don't need to read your Bible? No, it is our implement of war. It's how we do battle. Do that. But don't do it because it will give you victory because it won't. 
The victory is in Christ. Amen. The victory is in Jesus. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Do it because he said, follow my commandments, then you are my friend. Do it because it shows us more and more and more of who he is, who is in us, who is on us, who is with us, who is giving the Israelites victory, who is giving us victory. If you trust in the implements of war, if it is about your prayer and about your word reading and about your disciplines, whatever they might be, your worship, did I do a good job worshiping with my heart in the right place? If it's about any of that, then when the enemy rises up against you, and he will, when he calls out every last resource against you, and he will, when you get ready to move into a new area of conquest for God inside the same commission, when the enemy does that, you're going to be going like this. Well, did I worship well? Did I pray today? Am I prayed up? Did I read my Bible this week? How often? But am I ready to share Christ with this person? Am I ready to serve? Am I ready to give until it hurts? Can I bleed today? Is today a good day to be martyred? Because, you know, I really didn't, I didn't do my devotional this morning, and so I'm afraid if I'm martyred today, I may not go to heaven. What? I know in whom I have trusted, and that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Or do you? Because if you don't, you're not saved. You probably ought to get saved right now. Because it isn't about, are we prayed up? It isn't about, are we read up? It isn't about, did we stand up? It isn't about, did we follow the commands? It's about, did you trust Jesus with your whole life? And out of trusting Jesus with your whole life and becoming a follower of the Lord flows these spiritual disciplines which we can use to be informed, which we can use to be ready, Joshua and the Israelites did not go out and fight those men with their chariots and their horses without their swords and armor. They wore their swords and armor to go out. They're not stupid. God gave them those swords and armor. They did not go out without the courage of the Lord. They did not go out without the promise of the Lord. But when they saw those chariots forming up, they began to think to themselves, now this is a bigger opposition than we have faced before. And God himself said, be ye of great courage, for I will give this enemy into your hand. And then he didn't stop there. He said, and then you will hamstring their horses and burn their chariots so that you will know that there are implements of war that your enemies use and you cannot capitalize on capturing those. So we now live in a world where it's okay to get on social media and rail about what you don't agree with. And you might even actually make some progress, sway someone's opinion or something. We cannot use that tactic because that is not our tactic. Our tactics are the spiritual disciplines and the things that God has commanded us, us to do and to be. Now, we cannot rely wholly on the spiritual disciplines. We rely wholly on Christ. You see how far you come when you begin to practice the tactics of the enemy? When you begin to bring to bear the implements of war that the enemy uses? How far have you come? We've come so far that you're not using the implements of the war that God has given you. Which is so far because you're not, we don't win the war by the implements of war that God has given us. We win the war by God himself. How far are you allowed to come? You're allowed to come this far. I trust wholly in the Lord and I exercise the spiritual disciplines that the Lord has given me, put into my life as I am obedient and faithful and hopefully will be found so when Jesus comes again. This is how far I'm allowed to go. That's it. That's the parameters. That's the kingdom war engine. It's all there is. If you step off of that juggernaut, you're on the ground and you will get run over by the implements of war of the enemy. Because it was God himself that brought the chariots down, 
not the armor, not the swords or the tactics of the Israelites, not the implements of war that they were given. And God said, you will go then and destroy the implements of war of the enemy so that you will not be tempted to exercise those as you might already be tempted to rely upon the ones that I have given. That alone would be failing enough because what you rely on is not what I have given Our spiritual disciplines are our warfare artifacts. They are the implements of war. They are given to us to practice, given to us to perfect, if possible, during this lifetime. And I understand that to say that our spiritual disciplines are artifacts of warfare is dangerously using semantics so that my prayer life, my worship time, my service, my giving, etc., empowers the kingdom of advance, which is all true, but I can't really hold those things in my hand like I could a sword or armor. I can't burn them like I could a chariot, right? So I understand that it's a, a, a matter of semantics, but I also know that the scripture clearly says we trust in Christ alone. And I'm going to rattle through some support for what I've been talking about, uh, but I won't slow down enough for everybody to necessarily go there and read. Uh, but you can mark them. If you're a note taker, I encourage you to write them down. If you want me to text them to you later, I can. And it says this, And the disciples were astonished at his words, but Jesus answered again, and saying unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Well, wealth is an artifact at best, and I submit to you that you could literally, you could put any of these spiritual disciplines that I just read off to you and any others that you might come up with in that place. How hard is it for those who trust in Bible intake to come into the kingdom of God? How hard is it for those who trust in evangelism to come into the kingdom? How hard is it for those who trust in service to come into the kingdom of God? How hard is it for those who trust in stewardship or worship to come into the kingdom of God? You see, that's what was going on in the lives of the Jews in their day. They were trusting in faithfulness, obedience of their own standards, right? Standards that were basically ridiculous, had nothing to do with what God had set. They had a whole verbal and written law that went way beyond what God had ordained for them. But they were trusting in those standards. And they said, if they just do those things, then they would be saved. They would remain to be God's people. God would always be on their side. They were trusting in disciplines rather than trusting in God to make a way. Abraham had no disciplines. Lived hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Maybe thousands. Probably thousands, yeah, that's a better way of saying it. Over a thousand years for sure. And he was saved by grace through faith because he trusted in the way that God would make. Well, it's a blessing because Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Basically, he said, trusting in any artifacts is at least bondage. Plus, you're trying place your trust in God. And then he went on to say, oh, don't worry about it. All things are possible with God. So if necessary, God can put a camel through the eye of a needle. So who are you going to trust? What are you going to trust? A camel? No, God. A chariot? No, God. A word? No, God. A prayer? No, God. First Corinthians 3 says this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord 
of me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, meaning, and people always interpret that to say that you can't, it's not a work salvation, that Paul was saying you can't do works to earn your salvation. But I submit to you that the writing there is not past tense. It is at least also present tense. Actually, I believe the tense is past, past into present and future. So I mean, it, those, those words mean they started back then, but they go through now and they go into the future. And so you could read it, you could have translated it, although it would be very convoluted, you could translate it this way. But join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to what our works were, are, or ever will be, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. But according to his own purpose and grace, because of what God is doing, what he is about, and because he desires to give us a free gift, which we do not deserve, nor can we deserve it, nor ever will we deserve it. I can't tell you how many years of my life I've lived in regret, wishing I hadn't lived those 25 years the way I did, thinking at some point in time I might somehow glorify God with my actions, and I've strained myself trying to live up to the measure of the grace that he has given me, and it will not happen. It's not going to happen. That is not why we live well. We don't live well to make up for how poorly we lived. It's not possible. You could do that if you're a Muslim, in which case you're 99% likely to go to hell. The only way you're not going to go to hell is if you find Jesus and get saved. And you're probably not going to because you're going to be busy trying to make up your life to be better than what it was. And that's not how you get there. He said, but according to his own promise and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the word shows us Jesus, for which I was a appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I, reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And Jesus said this, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Be careful about worship, service, prayer, any of those things being where your treasure is. Your treasure must be with Jesus. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In other words, did we not exercise our supposed gifts for you? Did we not get good at that? Did we not... Tell people what they needed to know and in thy name have cast out devils. Did we not even do exorcisms and free people from evil spirits and in thy name done many marvelous works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. <laughs> so if those who prophesy and cast out demons for Jesus... That's not enough. Those may be implements of warfare, but no matter how you would, good you would ever get at that, that can't save you. Knowing and being known by the Christ is the way. And of course, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Subtext, and I don't care how good he gets at living saying he's a Christian. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
the holiest, mightiest, best, most disciplined Christians who have ever lived. Christians name only. Because they are all that. Trying to be like I was. But I don't know them. Trust not in the implements of war, but in he who gives the victory. The last thing I want you to see in here is that, uh, and, it, and it takes us a little far afield for a second, but it's very brief, I think, I hope. Destroying your cities is foolish. Remember, Joshua only destroyed completely Jericho and Hazor, burned some of Ai. I'm sure there were damages in other cities and so on, but they moved into these cities. They became their cities. They were the cities that God was giving them. Destroying your cities is foolish. Now, I understand that they're not our cities. They're God's cities. They're not our victories. They're God's victories. It's not our conquest. It's God's victory. And God decides when those cities are destroyed. God has them destroy Hazor and Jericho completely. God decides when the cities would be destroyed. I don't know why. It doesn't say why specifically Jericho and Hazor were destroyed and the rest remained to be lived in. Jericho and Hazor were the biggest cities. They were the most opulent, wealthy, best protected. would have been great for the Israelites to have those cities. I don't know why God had them destroy those cities and let them keep the others, let them use the others. I know that the cities all belong to God, and so when God said destroy them, they just destroyed them. So if God says destroy your proverbial city, which I'll explain that a little bit more in a second, then you do that. Destroy it. But if God says take it and use it, then you take it and use it. Not the implements of war of the enemy. I'm not saying you can take in um, lust or lies, deceit, manipulation, any of those things. Those are implements of war of the enemy. And God never says take those things in and use them. I'm talking about the resources. I'm talking about the cities that were left empty by the destruction of the enemies of God. How did people destroy their cities? Well, uh, you may be you may know that some folks have made vows of poverty. They say, "Well, God, you know, the pursuit of money is the root of all evil, and so I'm just not going to have any money, never ever have any money." Now, God may be blessing them so that they can turn around and serve it, use it, finance mission work, uh, buy Bibles, buy kids that are starving, food, whatever. But they they refuse to have any money. Not going to have any money. They've destroyed the city so that they won't have to face the temptation. People take poverty, they take vows of loneliness. Monks that go and live on a hill somewhere, I don't know how you fulfill the Great Commission, living in a small cubicle in the back of a small keep somewhere far away from anybody and under an 11-year vow of, vow of silence. I don't know how that's supposed to be done. In fact, I think that's probably sin against God. Can't tell anybody about Jesus. Your testimony is unheard, unknown. Your witness has not existed. It gets a little closer to home in a minute. Some people ignorantly follow humans or misunderstood teaching. It feels real good to be able to say, everybody's going to heaven. doesn't matter whether you believe in Jesus or not. Everybody's going to heaven. He paid for sins. Everybody's going to heaven. And there's now hundreds of thousands of Americans who have bought into that belief that everybody's going to heaven no matter what. That's a lie. It's not true. They're buying into a misunderstood. People are following people who produce great books, videos, put their face up on the screen 40 feet wide. They're following them, following them as they teach supposedly the Word of God, but they're following that person rather than the Word of God. And by the way, following the Word of God will not save you. It's following Jesus that saves you. He's a living Word. And I understand it's all contained in there. I understand the gospel is there, the teaching is there, but I have known people who have memorized all of the book of Matthew 
who weren't saved. There was a waiter at uh, TGI Fridays years ago that I went and witnessed to a number of times. He had memorized almost, I mean, he could tell you every story, he didn't have it word for word, but he could tell you the entire book of Matthew. And he did not profess to be a Christian. You can't worship the Bible. you got to worship Jesus. You can't worship the person that's bringing you the Bible. I'm here to tell you I'm a screw-up. If you follow me, worship me, or have me as Lord, you'll go to hell. That's the way it is. You follow Jesus, have him as Lord, you'll go to heaven. What happens between now and them, it's in his hands, but that's how it is. There are people that are following people instead of following Jesus. There are people who are putting up futile resistance. They quietly cherish the things of their old life. They keep things that they themselves refuse to give up into the hands of the Lord. They keep it in their back pocket to draw it out so that they can use it for some feeling of comfort. No. You have to abandon it all. You can't quietly resist the lordship of Jesus. You have to give it all over into his hands. The people who practice what I call passive progression, so they sneak around having to do what it is that the Lord has really given them to do. They know what it is. They know they're supposed to tell people about Jesus. They know they're supposed to live like a light before man. They know they're supposed to live like a city on the hill. But, you know, God also wants you to pay your bills, right? God also wants you to take care of your house, right? God also wants you to take care of your kids, right? God also wants you to be respectful of all the people around you. Holy cow, when do we find time to get around to doing what God actually wants us to do? We're so busy setting rules about what God has told us we have to do. Now there's no sneaking. You're all out for Jesus, so you're not in for Jesus at all. And then people scuttle their boat. Do you know that there's a whole bunch of people in this world, and some of us are probably in this room, that are afraid to really do well? <laughs> we've dreamed of doing something that we could really do for the Lord, and we're afraid to really do that thing for the Lord because God really might empower it. Something amazing might happen. And Man, what happened if that happened? We might have to stand in front of people. Or we might have to go out and talk to people. We might have to talk to perfect strangers. Or we might have to give more than we've ever given before. Nobody in here wants to make a million dollars a year because nobody wants to give a $100,000 tithe. You know, like, oh, yeah, I'd love to give $100,000. I'd love to make a million dollars. Yeah, let's see you write that check for $100,000 when the time comes. Are you ready for that? If you want to make a million dollars a year, do everything you can to give $100,000, God will give you a million. You say, now, come on now, Pastor. you got to decide to put it all in for the Lord. I don't know what it looks like in each person's life, but this is what I do know, that there are people who are afraid to do well. And when they start to do well, they'll do everything they can, subtly, secretly, sneakily, around the back, around the corner, on the flank, to make sure that it doesn't work out. Bills all finally start to get paid, and the money's accumulating, the tithe's being paid, and they'll, and, they'll, and, and it's no, not because they're stupid, they're not stupid. Not because they're ignorant, they're not ignorant. There's some of these people are the most intelligent people in the world. I was one, I, sometimes maybe I am one still. And you really, things really start to get there, and you're ready to move into that new era of conquest, and you know what? It's deathly fear-causing to think they're going to come against me, the enemy's going to come. If I do this, I'm going to have to face all of the enemies of God with only God to help me. I'm going to have to face all of the enemies of God with only God to help me if I do this. Nope, I'm going to do it. I'll find some way, some excuse, some, I'll scuttle my boat. That's the analogy I use. I'll scuttle my boat. I'll put a hole in the boat so it sinks so I can't have to float over there. Surely it'll sink before I get in too deep. Scuttle our boat. It becomes a, you go to work somewhere and you're, you got a boss who's a butthead. I'm going to quit. That's it. I don't have to put up with this crap anymore. My bills are caught up. I'll find another job before it becomes a problem. Listen, everywhere you ever worked is going to be a butthead. I know, because I've worked multiple places, and there's always been at least one butthead. Half the time, I was the butthead. The point is, there's someone everywhere that's a butthead. Go there, you'll find them. 
quit the job you're in now, you'll find another one somewhere else. They're like stop signs. They're literally everywhere. You don't need to scuttle your boat when you start to do well because burning, destroying the cities that God has given you is just, that is foolishness. People say, I've put up with this long enough or I don't deserve this or they claim their rights, right? How dare he talk to me that way? How dare she say that to me? Do you have rights? Yes, human rights, right? You know, when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, you know what they based those rights off, off of? The inalienable rights? God. <laughs> God has rights. And we hold these truths to be self-evident, evident, right? There are certain inalienable rights. You know what an inalienable right is? It's a right that cannot be taken away because God maintains it. The person who was killed last night in Saudi Arabia for being a follower of Jesus did not have their inalienable rights taken away from them. You can't kill somebody to take their rights. You can't torture them to take their rights. You can't talk them to death to take their rights. They have their rights because God gave them, and you can't take them away from them no matter what they are. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that men have certain inalienable rights and no one and nothing. You say, we talk about the gospel. We're free to share the gospel in America, and we don't do it. That's a travesty of justice. But in Saudi Arabia, it's illegal to share the, the, the gospel. People who live in Saudi Arabia know that it doesn't matter if it's illegal or not. You know what? You're totally free to share Jesus wherever you go, whenever you go. You say, I go to my work. My boss tells me I can't share. I'm not free to share. You are free to share. What's the worst that can happen? You could be fired. Right? But that's not even what people do. They don't share, and then eventually their job becomes too unbearable, and they quit, never having shared. I'm fed up with this place. What you should have done was shared and risked the chance of losing your job and being fired for it. You share, risk the chance of losing your job. Maybe you could turn the place into a place you might actually want to work. People got their chariots in front of their horses when they're not supposed to have chariots or horses at all. And then lastly, and I'm just giving examples here, people compare their situation to the situation of others and they decide to go after what others have instead of utilizing what they've been given from God. So while we're supposed to be telling people about Jesus and seeing them get saved, while we're supposed to be serving one another and loving everybody we possibly can, we're busy looking at what somebody else has and figuring out how we can get that, which was not on the plan. It's not part of the commission. It's not part of the conquest. It was never God's plan for you to look at what somebody else has and figure out how you can get what they have. It was God's plan for you to use whatever he gives you for his glory. It's very simple. So what you have now, that's what you're supposed to use for his glory. When you look at what somebody else has and want that, so even if you say you want it for his glory, we know that's not actually true, but even if you say you want what they have so you can use it for his glory, that's not the plan. That's not the commission. You take what you have and gain ground for God in your life and in the lives of anyone around you that touches on you that will listen to you. Destroying the cities is foolish. It is error. It is not what God would have you to do. He wants you to use the resources that he has entrusted you with. Trusting in the implements of war is error. It's foolish. It is not what God would have you to do. He wants you to trust only in him and use those implements of war for what they were meant for. Warfare. Whose victory will be determined not by how well you use those implements, but by whom you are fighting for. God. And all of this comes about when you decide to take on new ground, furthering the commission that God has given you for yourself. Okay, we come to the conclusion, and we're, we're going to wrap it all together, I think, in a nice, neat package. All of this, all the work that's involved and in how difficult it is, is why people decide regularly not to go into new areas. It's why we decide not 
to practice the Great Commission. It's why we decide not to conquest for the Lord. It's why we decide not to fight one or two demons, because we know eventually if we get to be doing something that God really wants us to do, the enemy will muster his forces and come against us directly, and nobody wants to become against directly. Why? Well, we heard it in the inspirational reading, didn't we? Because we're afraid. Afraid of chariots? Sure. Uh, well, what's our chariot? Nasty words? Persecution? Termination from a job? Someone saying they don't love you? Someone saying get away from me? Someone saying don't call me anymore? Someone not inviting you? Those kinds of things, whatever it is. And we're afraid of all of that. Here's what's interesting. Jesus said this in Luke 21, 9 through 19, and I'm going to read it. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Notice he said, you will be put to death. And then he said, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. When it all goes wrong, you can realize it was promised. You can claim victory and persevere, or you can take matters into your own hands. As you know, that was not how you were saved. You also can know that is not how you will be saved. But victory of some other kind seems so readily available. We can use the tactics of the enemy. We can claim the victory for ourselves. We can escape this, this great attack. We can not go up to face them, not suddenly come upon Satan and his demons as they occupy someone else's life. Rather, we can wait for them to come to us and, and defeat them by a war of attrition or use some other means. But God said, go and I will give you the victory. The victory in Christ, the victory in God, does not seem so readily available because regardless of the number of victories we have had so far, it still requires faith. It requires us to believe and to trust in God. Once you've used faith to get going, sometimes the out-of-control, the sort of unreasonable requirements of faith make other alternatives seem better. This is what I need to do. This is what I have to do to survive. I don't want to get hungry. I don't want to bleed or suffer psychologically. So I'm going to use these tactics, implements of war of the enemy, or I'm going to claim for myself some other kind of victory that is not a victory in Christ. I will trust my own spiritual disciplines. I will trust my own abilities. We start to do that. Even though faith led us to the point at which we were saved and brought us out to this point, we start to say, I'm going to trust in something like that rather than trusting in God because God is crazy. God is nuts. He wants me to go through this. This is the test of whether your faith now or before when you got saved even was then or is now genuine. 
Paul wrote it this way. He said, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. And the test is, when you go to move into a new area, already commissioned by God, you go on in to take on a challenge and overcome some barrier that's already been commissioned by God, and God has already said he will be with you for your success and your victory, but you have to look at the enemy, gathered like never before, pulling out all the stops to come against you, and say, I will suddenly go up, and I will let God win the war. I will let God win the victory, and I will not claim the enemy's tactics, his tools, his implements of war. I will not trust in my own artifacts of war, my own spiritual disciplines, my own success to this point. I will not debate with myself whether I have practiced those spiritual disciplines or not to decide whether today is the right day to go up. When the Lord says go up, I will go up, and I will claim that conquest in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I will have victory because Jesus literally never loses. And if you can't make that statement, if you can't do that thing and go where God is taking you, then you don't want to go. Go up when the enemy is standing in your face. Go up when the enemy is gathered and looks like he has the sand, numbers like the sands on the seashore. If you can't do that, and according to Paul, your faith, and that's a problem. It is by grace of God, through faith, by grace of God, and yet through the God through the channel of faith, that we are saved, that we remain, that but will there be faithfulness on the earth when the Son of Man comes again? Well, there will be. And it will be found in the people who know already that the enemy is going to throw every single thing he can muster directly at you anytime you decide to move into a new area, completing a new part of the commission for God. You can fall and you can fail. You can believe 